Turning your Bible to Joshua chapter 4 as we continue this series through uh, what is indeed a very powerful narrative. It's a book that is, well, it's contained within what is known as the Hexateuch. If you know the Pentateuch, 5, Hex 6, so it lands within that the confines of what scholars refer to, but it really begins the section in God's Word known as the historical narrative. This is a history book indeed, but in this history book we see much of what Christ, who Christ is, and we see much of our journey as we labor on uh, forward as pilgrims in this world. Joshua chapter 4, I'm going, to read the enti- I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter again. This is the word of the Lord. So let's give attention to it as it is read. Joshua 4, beginning with verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, And bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished the Lord, that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. People passed over in haste. When all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord, and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About forty thousand ready for war passed over before the Lord, before the Lord for the for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. The Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, 
what do these stones mean? Then, then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is the word of the living God. Each and every day, every one of you that at least drive cars do things that you probably, or notice things that you're probably at this point in time rather oblivious to. Probably not conscious of anymore. You probably give little or no thought to it. But what you do and what you notice is uh, signs. You see them. uh, Whether you uh, are really that aware of them or not, you take notice in some sense, and then you heed that which that sign tells you. For instance, as you're driving down the road, you come to this, this uh, eight-sided figure with the big, red, uh, big, big white words on it that says stop with a red background, and you know it, automatically that that means that you should stop your car. But of course, you know that the sign itself doesn't stop your car. You know that the sign itself points to something else. It points to the danger that exists if you don't stop, It points to the reality that if you don't stop, you may very well be ticketed by a police officer, or you might die. As I said this morning, the first is preferred to the second, but the fact remains that the sign points to a greater reality. Much the same way here in this fourth chapter of Joshua, we have signs. Uh, We have, in the words as it's given in the chapter, we have these memorials that are established by God himself. Not only do we have the memorials or the signs established, we have the reasons that stand behind them. Twelve stones representing something, anything, frankly, and you can make up anything, I guess. It's just stones. But God tells us what those stones point to. And we have those very signs within the life of the church. God has not left us with the, without those as we uh, labor on as God's people. We have the sign of baptism. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It points to a greater reality. We have the sign and seal of the Lord's Supper that we take, thankfully, every week in this church. But it points to a greater reality. Reminds us, doesn't it? Both sacraments remind us of something. It reminds us of something of uh, the faithfulness of God. It reminds us of something of the power of God. It reminds us of something of the redeeming work of God. These things that are perpetually in front of us, day after day, night after night, are there because you and I, whether we like to admit it or not, are forgetful. And we need to be reminded And God reminds us, just as he reminds the people of old here in Joshua 4, he reminds us in the New Testament church today. He gives us signs. Now the question, of course, as we consider this chapter and as we look at it from a Christocentric point of view, the question, of course, for you and me is, do we take advantage of the signs or do we ignore them? Imagine if you were driving and ignored the stop sign. 
You just chose not to give it any attention. Well, by God's grace, you might survive, and you might not. The danger lurks, doesn't it, to, to ignore that sign and end up in, in, in great uh, calamity. In much the same way, if we ignore the signs that God gives to His church, we too will end in great calamity. Now, the context of this chapter is quite clear. It's really, um, there's a, a technical theological term for how chapter 3 and chapter 4 go together. And for the life of me, I can't remember it right this moment. So you'll have to ask me later. I'll have to dig it up. It starts with a P. It's all I've got. But anyway, it is as though these two chapters are concurrent themes looked at from different points of view. We saw in chapter 3 the crossing of the Jordan, but then we come to chapter 4, and it seems, though, that as we read chapter 4, we're reading similar events. The people come over the Jordan, the souls of the priests come out of the water or come off, off the dry ground, and the waters return to their place. On and on. It, it sounds like the same story. And in some sense, it is exactly the same story, except that here's the difference. It's looked at from a different point of view. In the first, cha- in the first cr- uh, event of the crossing in, in, in chapter 3, it's looked at from the perspective of the people and how they are to behave and what they are to do as they follow the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River. In chapter 4, we have it more focused on the leaders and what they are to do for the people that they might remind the people of the great, mighty, faithful acts of their God. And so I want to show you in this chapter, at least in part, I want to show you that God is kind enough to give us memorials. He's kind enough to give us memorials, signs, if you will, to help us remember His faithfulness to us through all generations. Maybe you think we sang Great is Thy Faithfulness because it just we've sung it before and we all and we know this everybody knows it so it's safe and no one will complain. No. I don't order my worship service. We don't order worship that way here. It's organic. It was designed on purpose. Why? Because I'm going to show you in this chapter that God is kind enough to give us signs to help us remember his faithfulness to us through all generations. Two points as we consider this fourth chapter. First, a memorial of remembrance, and then a memorial of unity and faithfulness. A memorial of remembrance, and a memorial of unity and faithfulness. First, this memorial of remembrance. The city, or the setting of the event, is that the people of old have reportedly, at least, according to chapter 3, crossed the Jordan River. But now, we come to chapter 4, and it says that that event never took place, and that we're reliving that same event now in this chapter. We are seeing, as it were, an event from a different angle. But of course, all of the event, both chapter 3 and chapter 4, is designed to remind us of a greater crossing. That crossing, of course, being the crossing of the Red Sea. The chapter itself alludes to it there at the very end of the narrative. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. And so 
God is making this direct line connection between the events of the Exodus to the Red Sea crossing and Exodus, and I won't even ask you to tell me what chapter it is, it's chapter 14, and then a connection from there to Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4. And there is an important link that guides them all. And that is God's act of faithfulness to deliver his people as he has promised to do. And in this setting, now we have a command. It's a rather odd one. It's a command that is on its face strange. You read that and you think, why am I doing this? Verse 1, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, and we see the instructions given from verse 2 all the way down through verse 7. Now, as you read that, of course, you read it with knowledgeable people. You understand the narrative. You know the end of the narrative. You know exactly why God is giving this command. But imagine if you're Joshua. You've never heard this command before. You don't know where God's going with this. No clue. You want me to do what? Twelve stones, huh? Just pick up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan River and haul them across and drop them on the shores of Gilgal and and erect them over there. and and Really? Uh, Okay. When I was a boy growing up, my father would often give me instructions. Sometimes uh, they didn't make any sense, at least from my point of view. I mean, what do I know? I was a child. Of course, I thought I knew everything then, and he was dumb. And as I got older, he got smarter. He didn't always tell me why. And that usually works for children, but for adults, it's not always that uh, easy to just take a command, a directive from your boss or a friend or whatever the case may be, and just do what you're told. Go dig a ditch. Okay, why? Just go dig a ditch. Well, I'm not, forget it. I'm not doing that. I need to know the reason. You give me a good reason, I'll go dig the ditch. I'm a grown man. And see, Joshua's standing there probably thinking to himself, okay, fine, I know you're God and I'm just Joshua, but um, can you help me out? God gives this really strange command, an odd command. Sometimes God gives those to us too. Let me give you some odd ones. Love your enemy. What? Say, say that again. Love your enemy. That seems so counterintuitive, God. That's not natural. It's, it's more natural to, to blow up my enemy. What do you mean, love my enemy? No, that's what I want you to do. I want you to love your enemy. Okay, fine. I got it. I'm going to love my enemy. All right, here's another odd, odd command. Humble yourself. But the whole world does it the other way. They exalt themselves. Uh, here, here's another odd command. Uh, give to the poor and the needy and the weak of the world. Here, here, here's another odd command. Be least of all the people. Here, here's another odd. The, the list is endless within the Christian culture. In the Christian worldview, it is, as, as it were, counterculture to everything that we're taught in the world around us. God sometimes gives us strange directives, at least from our point of view. Well, what is interesting about this rather odd, and if you agree with my conclusion that it is kind of an odd command, 
Um, what is interestingly missing from this command of God given to Joshua is that Joshua doesn't say a word. Nothing. He doesn't argue. He doesn't debate. He doesn't question. He simply obeys. You read through the verse 7 verses and you see that, and then what do we have there? Well, Joshua doing exactly what he was commanded to do. We have almost a repeat event, a repeat instructions, uh, this time at the hand of Joshua from verses 8 through verse 10. Joshua obeys this strange command of the Lord. There's no hint on Joshua's part of any kind of question, argument. He just merely does what he is told to do. Now, parents, you know all too well what that is like. When my wife and I were raising our children, we, uh, at a certain point in their life, uh, when they were so young that the only uh, answer to the question of why should you clean your room is because I said so, that should be good enough for me, that's good enough for me, it's good enough for you kind of thing. And that was the way it was. I would not debate or get into an argument with a four-year-old. As hard as they might try to draw me there. But as they got older, that didn't work as well anymore. Because now it becomes a question of reason. Why am I doing this? Is it okay, Dad? Why? I don't understand why. Asked respectfully, asked in the right way. It's a legitimate question. God understands that Joshua is in this situation. He understands that he's perplexed, perhaps, and wonders why he's dragging 12 stones across the Jordan and dropping them on the shore of Gilgal. Does it make sense? I don't get it. God doesn't leave him hanging with the reality of it. He gives him, here in the text, the reasons for doing so. Most people like to know why they are doing what they are doing. Most people. And Joshua is not unlike most people. And so he is told, verse 6, that this shall be a sign for you. That this may be a sign among you. These 12 stones carried by the 12 tribes of Israel, representatives from the 12 tribes of Israel, this should be a sign among them. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the Lord um, then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Put a different way, you shall tell them that the Lord rescued you from the wilderness to the heavenly rest, from the place of misery to the place of glory. It is a sign that is helpful because it, it serves to instruct and remind the people of God of something. And God tells us here what it is. Clearly the stones have no power in themselves. Clearly the stones don't communicate anything other than just stand there. They don't speak. They don't hear. They don't do anything. But they do represent. In just the imagery, in just their presence, in their visual range, each and every time the people saw these stones there, they would be reminded of the deliverance of God for them. 
As I was reading one commentator on this particular chapter, it was rather interesting and humorously he did this. He, he described it like this. He said, imagine uh, some many years down the road after the events of the Jordan and these people are, are long gone and the children's children have been taught about the Lord and they decide to take a family vacation to the state park of Gilgal. And there they see these 12 stones just sitting there and little Susie and little Johnny walk up to and say, what are these stones? They're arranged in a certain way. There's 12 of them, not 13, not 11. There's 12. And Daddy is, has an opportunity to do what? Tell them of the hope of God, the gospel of Christ. Every time. This is the reason, Joshua, you're doing this. I want you to put this in front of them always, that they might not forget me. Now, we know their history, don't we? Had they heeded this memorial, had they taken more family vacations, as it were, to the state park of Gilgal and been instructed rightly in these things, perhaps the people of Israel would not have apostatized the faith. Maybe they wouldn't have been carried into exile as they were in 722 B.C. and 586 B.C. Maybe they would have remembered the God of heaven that saved them and freed them. But we know what happened. In spite of, despite the fact that these 12 stones were there, some, some forgot. Some forgot. There are many reasons why they forgot. One of them is that they, they were not taught. They were not told what these represent. They weren't told what they are picturing. They weren't told what they, the sign is pointing to. Put a different way, fathers failed to teach their families the things of the Lord. Now, I don't need to remind you that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today, we have that going on in spades. Fathers not teaching their children the things of the Lord. And frankly, I, don't, I, I, I struggle to understand it. Every Lord's Day in this church, your children sit in this room, and they see... Not only do they hear the singing of God's praises, they hear the prayers to the God of heaven, they hear the word of God proclaimed, but they witness a sign. It goes by them as mom and dad pick up the, the bread that goes by them, representing the very blood of Christ, the sign as they pick up the thimble of wine, a sign. And the question, of course, is, Mom, Dad, are you teaching your children what this means? You have a golden opportunity. It's handed to you. No book needed. No Amazon account required. All you need to do is tell your children what this is. Talk to them about it. The people of Israel failed and by and large, to do that. But it doesn't change the fact that the sign of the stones pointed to a greater reality, and that is the faithfulness of God. God remained faithful even when they failed to be faithful. The setting, of course, is the crossing of the Jordan. God gives a command. He obeys it. The reasons for this command, these stones being erected, is that the people might not forget the faithfulness of their God we have that in the Lord's Supper, but notice also, fifth, the time. 
that it occurs. There are some details in historical narrative that must not be missed. It's easy to miss it. I confess it is. It's easy to miss it. That's why the Lord's given you pastors and elders to point these things out so you won't never miss it again. But if you look at verse 19, there we read, if I'm in chapter 4, it would be helpful. Chapter 4, verse 19. People came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. Significant? Important? Or is the narrator just giving us a dot, a speck, or a reminder on his calendar? No. For those of you who are good Bible students, first, the tenth day of the first month should leap off the page as a significant date in the history of God's people. And of course, we're talking about the commencement of the Passover. A sign of the redeeming work of God. Further confirmation that these stones of remembrance might then be strengthened by the reality of the Passover, which they will now celebrate on the plains of Jericho in full sight of their enemy for the next week. As they sit and remember and dwell upon and think upon the redeeming act of God in the Exodus as they came out of that place and where the Passover was instituted in Exodus chapter 12. The Passover representing the great redeeming work of God. And here again, the great redeeming work of God to bring the people from the place of wilderness and misery into the very promised land of rest, the promised land of hope. It is, as it were, a bookend, two bookends here. The first one appearing in Exodus chapter 12, the very first Passover. And then this bookend appearing and celebrated in Joshua 5 as the second bookend, the first Passover in the promised land. Here in the very shadow of these remembrance stones, the people of Israel worship and celebrate the sign of their redemption. Now we have these days in our lives as people today, we have memorial signs, days, dates that are important. You have anniversaries, you have birthdays, and we have the Memorial Day, the the United States version. We have July 4th. These are significant dates on our calendar. No more date in the history of Israel is more important than this one. This is huge. And it's here that they celebrate, worship, and recognize the faithfulness of God in redeeming a people. It is a memorial of remembrance. Second, we have a memorial of unity and faithfulness. A memorial of unity and faithfulness. There is a unity here with the people. It is interesting the way the chapter begins when all the nation had finished passing over. Prior to this point, except for that last verse at the end of chapter 3, the people of Israel were referred to just that way. The people. 
But now God sees them as a united whole. One people, one nation, a holy nation. A nation redeemed by him, a change in very much in how God views the people. If you look back in chapter 3 and verse 6, and Joshua said to the priest, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. And then verse 14, you have very much the same. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, it wasn't until they actually crossed over all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, when all the nation passed over. There's a change in how God sees them. Very much the way in which He sees us as a people. He sees us as one. Not a bunch of fragmented people running around doing their own thing, playing Lone Ranger Christian. One body, one people, one fellowship, one baptism, one spirit, one gospel. There's also a difference in the way that people relate to one another. It is highlighted here in very somewhat principled language given in um, verses 11 through 13. Verses 11 through 13, we have the the summary elements related to the Transjordan tribes of Israel, the two and a half tribes, the ones that were promised to remain on the other side of the Jordan, to have their inheritance there. But they were told by Moses, you will have that inheritance, but you will not receive it until after you cross over with your brothers that you might fight alongside them as they conquer and take the land. For you are related to one another. You are brothers in the battle. And so these two and a half tribes, they do precisely what they were told to do. And as God delivers us as his people, his faithfulness is demonstrated as he brings us, you and me, into union with Christ. It should cause us then, therefore, as we find ourselves united to Christ and to one another, that we might then labor with one another to bear one another's burdens, to weep with those who weep. I think I read that somewhere. To rejoice with those who rejoice. I think I read that somewhere too. That's just my Yankee humor, in case you haven't figured it out yet. I forgot, this church doesn't laugh very much. That's right, I forgot. But forgive me. We had to work as one. You know, this idea that 20% of the church does 80% of the work. I think I mentioned this the other last week. We're to serve one another. Two and a half tribes didn't, you know, gripe and complain. They crossed the Jordan. They did what they were told. They served their brothers. They labored alongside them in war and battle. Well, we're doing the same. And so we labor for a common goal to help one another, to serve one another, to sign up on the cleanup sheet to clean the church. Go look at it. We need to sign up on it. That's how we help each other. If you're physically able, serve one another, labor together, help each other, 
Be mindful of one another. Pray for one another. The list goes on and on. I could go in the New Testament and give you all the one another texts. The Apostle Paul punches out why. He does so because it's all rooted in this concept of being one. A unity of believers. Not uniformed, as I said last week, but unified. It's a memorial of unity. It's a memorial of faithfulness. Faithfulness. It's very interesting. If you turn back to chapter 3 and verse 7, you see a rather remarkable promise given by God Himself. Not a promise He gives to too many people in the Bible, I'll tell you. In fact, I can only think of two besides Joshua. Now, there may be others, but I can't think of them. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. Wow. The God of heaven is going to exalt this man. Joshua, not accidental by the way, I'll come to it, I'm getting there. But he promises to do it. Joshua hasn't, ex- hasn't exalted himself. Joshua hasn't promoted himself. Joshua has, he's been faithful to do what the Lord has told him to do. He was appointed by God to do this work, and he's doing the best he can. He's faithful. He's going to make mistakes. We're going to see one of them in a, little, in a few chapters. God tells him he's going to do this. He's going to exalt him in the face of all the people that they may know that as I was with Moses... The other guy that was exalted by God, I am also with you. Woof. That's both a blessing and I don't know what. Scary. God makes this promise. Verse 14 of chapter 4. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him. I've met a lot of people in my life I respect greatly, listen to, love reading Calvin, you know that. I'm not in awe of him. In fact, I can't think of anybody I'm in awe of in that way. God says, the people here, after I've exalted you, they're going to be in awe of you. God promises, he fulfills it. What God does and says to his people, he accomplishes. The picture, of course, is one of God's faithfulness to that which he says he will do that he does indeed do. The problem isn't with him. The problem is with us. For he always does what he says. But there is a much bigger picture here than that. Because rooted in these two expressions, both from chapter 3 over into chapter 4, we have very much the picture of what he did for Jesus Christ. Joshua, a type of Christ. Joshua, the man who would go across the Jordan, even as Jesus would go through the Jordan at his baptism. Jesus, who would then speak and preach before the people, and they would be in awe of him because he spoke not like the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, but as one who had authority. For God was with him. 
God had exalted him. And as he labored as a servant, the God-man, the Apostle Paul, makes it abundantly clear that through his service, God would super-exalt him to the place of his right hand, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. Someday, somewhere, everybody will be like the people on the plains of Jericho. They will stand in awe of Jesus Christ. They will stand with their mouths hanging wide open at His beauty and His majesty, some out of fear, some out of gladness, but they will be in awe of Him nonetheless because of what God the Father has done in super-exalting the Son through His service. As Joshua served, he was exalted. As the Lord Jesus Christ served, he was exalted as the God-man, our Lord and our Savior. And so as you think of this narrative here in this chapter and you look through the various ways in which these signs and these things point us forward, they ultimately point us to that great work of God to the redeeming work of Christ and delivering a people not into a plot of land, into a dusty bowl in which there is all kinds of chaos in the world today, but into that place of the new heavens and the new earth in which we find there our true rest, secured by the true Joshua, the one to whom we will stand in awe on that great day. As we pilgrim to that place in our lives, Christian, remember Remember that God has been faithful to you to give you signs. Within the confines of the Christian church, He's given you memorials that you might remember His faithfulness, that you might lay hold of His promises, that you might be helped to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and be encouraged. Because as God does that, He continues moving you forward through acts of kindness and mercy, not to a plot of land, but to a more glorious place that we all long to see. Stones of remembrance to strengthen our faith. Remembrance and memorials of various acts of unity and faithfulness to help strengthen our faith. And as we see those and employ them, It will indeed do just that. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy and kindness in giving to us these reminders that we need because we forget so easily. May you help us lay hold of these things and use them, teach our children them, teach ourselves, remind ourselves. May you be gracious to us. Thank you for your faithfulness for exalting your Son in whom we stand in awe of even this day. And we look forward to that great day. We will see him not by faith, but by sight. Be merciful to us, we ask, for Christ's sake.